If you have been attending the midweek Advent services, uh, you've heard Quentin sharing uh, some uh, three of the five messages I wrote for Advent through Christmas Eve, all based on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And today we conclude with the fourth message in the series, and you see the text uh, before you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whatever we, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you at waiting? You know, are you a one where it just drives you absolutely nuts when you go to the doctor or the dentist or any other places? Or are you a ten where you can just say, hey, Kesara, Sarah, you might to wait for a lot of different things. Well, in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, my wife and I flew out to California uh, to visit her sister and her husband. And as we we're getting ready to fly, we were talking about when was the last time we ever flew together, when was the last time we ever flew anywhere together? And we realized that even though both of us had flown any number of times over the last number of years, we finally decided that the last time we were actually together on an airplane was six years ago, when, eight years ago, when we went to India. Now, I don't know what you think about going through the lines at airports. They can be pretty frustrating. Uh, they can tell you when your plane is going to leave. They can tell you what gate, but it doesn't always happen. And so I kind of watch all of that, and I kind of like people watching anyway. But if you've ever been in an airplane terminal when a plane is late, I'm going to suggest to you that there are probably four different kinds of people in that terminal. First of all, there are the pushers. These people constantly are up to the desk pushing for information. They go to the ticket counter asking, when is the plane going to be here? When is the plane going to be here? I've I got to know. i got to know. Is it going to be late? How late is it going to be? And pushers demand information as if knowing is going to cause the plane to somehow arrive faster. It's kind of like pushing buttons in an elevator. You know, maybe the elevator will come quicker if you push it multiple times. Well, there are also what I would call the doubters. These are the people when they go, oh, the plane's late. They just flop down in their seat in utter despair, utter defeat. 
Oh, woe is us. The plane is never going to come. And if it does, something's going to be wrong with it, I'm sure. I mean, they're going to have to get another plane. We're doomed. I said, We're all doomed. I've seen a few of those folks. Then there are the people I call the players. Uh, these are the people who say, hey, the plane's late. Great, let's go on down to the bar. We'll have a couple more beers. We'll watch a few football games. We'll eat a few more wings. You know, as long as we're here, let's just have fun. And finally, there are the encouragers. These are the people who say, well, it's true we don't have an arrival time yet. Uh, but you know, a plane is on its way. After all, I've flown American Airlines a number of times, and they've never let me down. But just kind of pay attention, because uh, it could show up most any time, and when it does, we're going to have to board very quickly. Now, what kind of a person, which one of those are you when it comes to waiting for a plane to come? Are you a pusher? A doubter, a player, or an encourager? Well, to be quite honest, you might say, what's that got to do with Advent or Christmas? The answer, absolutely everything. Because more important than how you take care of a plane is what kind of person are you when it comes to waiting for Jesus to return? What kind of a person are you when it comes Well, there are people, according to our text, that we would have to call pushers. Pushers need exact times and exact dates. When is Jesus going to come back? Now, some of you may remember a guy by the name of Edgar Wisnett. He was a NASA engineer uh, who used his mathematical skills to designate a date for Christ's return. In fact, he wrote a book. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. In fact, it was to happen in September. And when I saw the book and looked through it, I thought, wow, this is going to be really cool because we had our annual fall festival at Emmanuel and Belvedere when we gathered the entire congregation under one big tent for one big service. I thought, man, if the rapture comes today, we're all going home. But, then again, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said that the angels don't even know when the day is. In fact, it even says Jesus doesn't even know. But amazingly, Edgar Wisnett knew. But September 10th, 1988, came and it passed, as you all know. And the old saying is probably true, if at first you don't succeed, fail, fail, and fail again. And so Edgar actually wrote a second book, claiming that he forgot that the calendar doesn't start with a one, but it starts with a zero, and so he said he was a year off. Well, guess what? He was wrong again. See, no one knows the day or the time when Jesus is coming back. That's what Paul says in First Thessalonians. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, the only other time in the Bible that these same two words, times and dates, appear is in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And there Jesus tells his followers, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You see, at that time, the apostles, the disciples, were asking Jesus, When are you going to come back? We want to have details about the future. We want to be ready because we know if you're going to come on a certain day, we want to make sure we got everything prepared. But Jesus made it very clear 
that the duration of time between his first coming and his second coming were hidden from view. Now, there are some things that we're not meant to know until it actually happens. You know, like when we will die or surprise birthday parties or, or when your mother-in-law is coming to spend a month. And, and to that, you could add the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. That little phrase also is used two different places in the Bible, in Luke chapter 12 and again in Revelation 3. Now, let me ask you, how does a thief come? Well, he comes unexpectedly. He comes when we are unaware. I have never heard of a thief who calls ahead and says, Oh, by the way, while you're gone to church this morning, I intend to rob your house. It doesn't happen. But there are people who are pushers. They want to know. I don't know if that's you or not. But then there are the doubters. First Thessalonians says, Well, people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Some people aren't really sure whether Jesus is ever going to come back. Those people are probably the same people who are not sure that Jesus really was who he said he was. There's a story about a man who called 911. He said, my wife is pregnant. Her contractions are only two minutes apart. And um, the operator says, is this her first child? And the guy says, no, of course not. This is her husband. <laughs> now, you know, we all, we all know typically that a pregnant woman is going to have a baby. There's no escape from that. Just so Paul says to the doubters, you're not going to escape. Whether you believe in it or not, it's still going to happen. Now, when I was a little kid, growing up, my grandpa told me that if I touched an electric fence, it would shock me. So I touched it. <laughs> my grandpa said, I told you it would shock you. And I said, yeah, but I didn't think you meant it. <laughs> but friends, God means it when he says, Jesus is coming back. He means that. There are also people who are sleepers. Paul says, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. You know, even as a pastor, I'll confess to you that sometimes it's easy to become indifferent or apathetic to the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you practice that too long, if you just kind of are here today or gone tomorrow, or like we heard this morning in our study of Hosea, that some people are like, the, their righteousness is like the morning mist. It only lasts a little while until the heat comes. But pretty soon, if you're apathetic towards it, if you're indifferent, you can be spiritually not only asleep, but you can be spiritually dead. And what some people really need is a divine wake-up call. And I have a feeling that there may be some people someday that when the clouds open and the trumpets blow, that will be the wake-up call. There are also people we call the players. These are the people who get drunk and get drunk at night. I'm not telling you anything new, but Abraham Lincoln died. So did Woodrow Wilson. So did Babe Ruth. So did John Lennon. So did John Kennedy. So did Princess Diana. So did Robin Williams. Guess what? Unless Judgment Day comes, we will all 
die. I don't know if you know this, but two people die every second. More than 6,000 people die every hour. More than 155,000 people die a day, and about 57 million people die every year. Players tend to deny this fact. They somehow think that they're never, ever going to die. If you've ever had any association with teenagers, high school students like I have, there's such a thing we might call a Superman syndrome. They don't think anything can ever happen to them. They can drive as fast as they want to. They're never going to crash. They can do as much drugs as they want to. They're never going to overdose. They can drink as much as they want to. It's never going to harm them. So people ignore the biblical warnings. For them, a life is a party. You only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can. And yet there are the encouragers. But since we belong to the day, that would be you and I, we call ourselves Christ followers. Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. It's kind of interesting that Paul here uses armor imagery. He shows us what's essential for our uh, day of the Lord preparedness kit, if you will. He says nothing about canned food. He says nothing about purified water. No mention of a generator or even a handgun. Instead, as we prepare, as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we are to put on faith. We are to put on hope. We are to put on love. That's the same uh, triad, triad of characters that Paul mentions earlier in this book. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard that great love chapter where Paul says life really is basically boiled down uh, to its absolute essentials. Only three things are really going to count at the end, faith, hope, and love. And he says, and the greatest of these is what? Love. See, living this way encourages other people. It gives them credible hope in Christ's return. I was watching some of the incredible adventure stories on, I don't know what channel it is, National Geographic or whatever, not long ago, and I, I saw the story about a guy named Carl McCun. I don't know if you ever heard about it. He moved to Alaska in the late 1970s uh, when, uh, where he got a job, and when he got into Alaska, then he made some friends, and he planned an adventure that has had people talking about him almost ever since. Uh, what Carl planned was a five-month photography expedition into the Alaskan wild. He checked all of his details, prepared for everything he would need, and then in March of 1981, he was dropped into a very remote place near the Colleen River, 70 miles northeast of Fort Yukon. He had two rifles, he had one shotgun, he had 1,400 pounds of supplies, and 500 rolls of film. He began the adventure unaware that this little adventure was going to cost him his life. The reason was because Carl had made no arrangements for anyone to come back and pick him up. In August of that year, he wrote in his diary 
what's probably an understatement the size of Mount McKinley. He said, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging for my departure. And by late November 1981, McCunn was out of food, was without strength, without hope, isolated. He had no one to rescue him, trapped with no exit plan, and he died in the Alaskan wilderness. And I tell you that story very simply to say every trip comes to an end. So will ours. Encouragers are people who want to have an exit strategy. They say to their loved ones, they say to their friends, they say to their co-workers, they say to anybody who will listen to them, we don't have an arrival time. But Christ is on his way. He's not going to let us down. So we don't need to be afraid. We just need to be alert, though, because he could show up at any time. I often think and hope, I wish it would happen before I had to preach. That'd be a great time for Jesus to come back. Either to come back and take us all home or just me. That when we pray this morning, we're going to pray that that happens. You know that? We're going to say, thy kingdom come. Now, what does that mean? According to Luther, it means that we're praying that the kingdom of God come into the heart of everyone, that they all know Jesus, and that God will ultimately bring his kingdom back. So don't be afraid. Be alert. Because he could show up any time. And when he does, when he comes, guess what? He's going to take us home. So the question I'm going to ask one more time is, why should we be ready? Now, some people get ready because they have the fear of not being ready. I coached high school basketball for a number of years, and we always opened with the Thanksgiving tournament. And we could not start first practices until November the 1st. And so in that three-week period of time, I had to prepare a basketball team to play in a tournament with three other schools that were considerably larger than ours. And every year before that tournament, I would often leave ahead of time and go sit at a McDonald's close to Lyle High School, Lyle, Illinois. And I would sit down there and I would go through one more time everything that I thought I had prepared for. I had this great fear of going into a game and not being ready. I mean, can you imagine going into a basketball game against a team that always full court pressed and you had never practiced a press break? I had that fear. I have a feeling football coaches have those same kind of fears. Do I have everything nailed down? Well, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when you read about the second coming... And you realize what will happen if you do not know Jesus. I'll tell you, you get motivated pretty quick. But for many of us, our motivation for preparing is to to get ready is found in what Jesus has already done for us. I mean, think again about these previous verses, 9 and 10. He said, he has anointed, appointed us to receive his gift of salvation. Just think about it. Every last person here has been appointed by God to receive his gift of salvation. Now, when I hear that, after I think about after all we've ever done, he still, in his infinite mercy, in his infinite love, in his infinite grace, has given us this wonderful gift. And once again, consider the great price that Jesus had to pay to give us this gift. In Romans 5, it said, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his only love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, in addition to this, because Jesus had died and created a way uh, to cross that great divide that sin created between us and God, we are told that either by crossing the valley of death, falling asleep, dying, or by that climactic event, Judgment Day, that's going to end history, the good news is you and I are going to live forever with God. In Revelation 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Now the dwelling place, dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. <clears throat> they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, the name Fanny Crosby. Uh, Fanny Crosby is a blind gospel singer, uh, gospel songwriter, and uh, she wrote a song that's called Saved by Grace, and I think it's very interesting that a blind person would write a song that has this line in it, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story, Saved by Grace. Here's somebody who may have never seen a thing down here but he's going to see everything up there. I mean, I find that very encouraging. In fact, Paul uses, says, this to use, says this to encourage each other. And what a wonderful day that's going to be when we gather in heaven. I want to close this message today just with a wonderful verse from Luke chapter 21, verses 27 and 28. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. Let's pray. Father, during this Advent season, we are preparing. We are preparing for the first coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas. But yet, during this Advent time, we prepare for your second coming. When you come to take your people home to be with you forever in heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that we will be people who are prepared. And at the same time, people who are encouragers. Who also remind other people what is yet to come. Lord, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus who made this possible. Amen.